In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies, it is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet Following the truth wherever it leads Exposing evil and corruption And the secret machinations of powerful elites Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality Coming to you from the Great White North And his studio beneath the stairs Here's Richard we're going to speak with author and paranormal researcher Gare Allen, and he'll discuss how law enforcement and other first responders have experienced their share of paranormal encounters. That's so true. I've spoken to many police officers, law enforcement officials on this program, medical examiner, who have all had remarkable experiences with the supernatural. But as we know, they're not always willing to talk about their experiences. Gare is the author of 13 books including the Amazon bestseller, The Dead, A True Paranormal Story. Gare attended the Metaphysical Academy in Tampa, Florida during the mid-90s, which later inspired his series of short stories, Seven Lessons. That collection chronicles Gare's otherworldly experiences with reincarnation, astral projection, channeling, and divination. In 1999, Gare purchased a home that he soon found to be haunted. 
by its former, former occupant. And in his free time, Gare is an advocate of animal welfare and has donated his time and book royalties to assist local animal adoption agencies. His uh, other books include The Dead, A True Paranormal Story, Ghost Crimes, Ghost Crimes 2, The Paranormal Enemy. Gare Allen, welcome to Strange Planet. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm intrigued by this uh, metaphysical academy in Tampa, Florida, where you reside. Tell me about it. Yeah. So um, on a whim, I was driving and I was probably 25 at the time. And I turned into a plaza because I saw metaphysical academy and I had no idea what that was, but something told me to turn in and I did. And I walked in and it was a metaphysical bookstore, you know, which were popular, you know, during that, that time. And they also offered classes and workshops. And so, yes, they offered readings and, and regressions and things like that, but they taught you how to do them on your own. And I just, once I, I think I was there every other day, I think the owners found me strange at first, but then I became very good friends with them. And I just started devouring every book on reincarnation and divination and astral projection and just aliens and just anything. And it just really, you know, it, it really set me on a path to, to where I am today. And of course, you know, I took the time to chronicle them in books as well. Well, what led you to the Metaphysical Academy? Was there an incident, an experience that caused you to want to find out more? There were two things that happened. I had my first paranormal experience when I was 12 years old. Um, I had gone to bed and my bedroom was at the top of the stairs, um, two-story house. And I'd gone to bed and I had just laid down and the family dog was at the foot of the bed. And suddenly the, the bed levitated. It probably went up a couple inches, I'm not sure. Um, but it wobbled for a few seconds and then it just dropped back down with a thud. And my, you know, my limbs moved, the dog jumped off the bed, you know, giving me, you know, proof that it did happen. And just then my older brother was coming up the stairs and he kind of poked his head in the door. He said, what was that noise? And I didn't have any radio on, any TV on, anything like that. And I just, you know, I, I didn't say anything. I was probably white as a ghost. And he chalked it up to another little weird brother moment and just walked off. But I never had an explanation for that. And it's, it terrified me, but it, it kind of opened me up a little bit. And I think I've always had vivid dreams, very vivid dreams. I've had recurring dreams and I didn't know what to make of them, but they, they left me with a very emotional imprint every time I woke up. And I, I had a few prophetic dreams and I just knew there was something more. But at the time I was working retail management, which if anybody's worked in retail, you know, it's draining and you kind of shut down and you're just exhausted. So I was having these amazing experiences, you know, in the dreams. And I had that one that I couldn't shake from when I was a kid. But then at the same time, you know, I was, you know, working a lot of hours and I was actually in between jobs. I had left a job and I was starting a new one like two months later and I had taken some time off. And I think it was just you know, I was urged to go there and I turned in the plaza and it was exactly what I, what I needed. And what, and what did you discover about your past paranormal experiences at the Metaphysical Academy in Tampa, Florida? So I think the dream state, what I learned about the dream state was the subconscious is where your higher self, you know, whether you want to call it your spirit guide or, or your soul resides, and that's where they communicate with you. And their language is symbols, symbolism. And so that's why you come back with these, you know, very strange dreams that you got to figure out what everything means, because that's their language. And once I learned that, I was really able to kind of tap in even, and I started meditating, you know, so I could get the messages clear. You know, I stopped drinking sodas and things like that. I really wanted to make a strong connection as I could. 
And at the same time, reincarnation of all the things that grabbed me, reincarnation was the one that grabbed me. And I, I, at the time, it was for those who are old enough to remember, we had cassettes. And that's what I used to listen to, you know, certain tones and frequencies that put me back. And I learned that there was a lot more to life than what we had going on here. And that was a welcome understanding and something that I wanted to hear having been doing a day-to-day -day grind of retail management. It kind of gave me a little bit of a purpose and a direction as opposed to the mundane everyday life I'd been living in a sense. So are you able to perform a past life regression on yourself? I was able to regress into two particular lives on my own. That was after having been regressed by a trained um, hypnotist at the academy. But it took, it took months. I, and I did it every single night. And I aligned my chakras. And like I said, I changed my diet. I really dedicated myself because I wanted to connect with this. And it, as it turns out, I had connected with somebody at the academy who um, had shared a past life. And I was able to get confirmation from them without me sharing my experiences, they shared theirs, which mirrored mine. And so there were a couple instances where I would get the proof at the same time. And that what was so amazing about my experiences was things would happen, but then I would get confirmation that, you know, I wasn't making it up and, and there wasn't another explanation. And they were, it was just an amazing time. It was probably five years I spent at the Academy and um, it was amazing. Can you tell me more about this confirmation you received? Yeah. So I had my most recent life was, um, and I had actually passed away um, in December of 68 in that life. And I was born in January of 69 into this one, but I was due in December. Um, and I was very, I was late. Um, but I, I had gotten in a motorcycle accident where I was paralyzed for the last 11 years of that life. And not only that, but um, a girlfriend of mine in that lifetime was on the back of the bike. And in that accident, she passed away. And I didn't know it, but she had her unborn child and, and it passed away as well. And for the majority of my life up until that point, I was very I couldn't sleep with pajamas or blankets on. I was very claustrophobic about my legs and I never thought anything of it. I just didn't sleep with covers on. And once I uncovered that life, I was able to then put blankets on and, you know, wear pajamas if I wanted to, you know, at night. But I tapped into this individual at the academy um, and I dreamt that he was that woman in the past life, which was very strange to me to mix the genders and everything, but I just knew it. And I even tapped into the names and I got the name Julia, Julia. And I'll never forget because he was an accomplished psychic. He, he, he channeled, he unconsciously channeled his spirit guide. He was very dedicated to his craft. And one day we were talking and he's like, he's like, so did you see Julia? And I had dreamt about her the night before. And he did, a, there were so many times where he would do things like that. And I knew he was psychic. He had done readings for me and other people. He's very well known. And I was like, wow, that's just that's just too much. I mean, there's no way you could pick a random name. I didn't tell him I had dreamt about that lifetime the night before. Um, and that's, that was probably the strongest connection for me. Uh, once you regressed and experienced your life and death prior to your present incarnation, and you realized that you had perished or you were paralyzed in a motorcycle accident, and that would explain some issues you were having with your legs. Did that immediately resolve the issue with your legs? It did. It, it immediately went away. But what it didn't resolve was um, I, I tapped into a lot of other lifetimes, which, you know, kind of seemed mundane and simple. 
but I wasn't, it was nothing spectacular, but there was a common theme. So in one, I was a soldier who was captured. I was thrown into an under, you know, ground jail, literally starved to death and left to die uh, by myself. As another one, I was a, you know, little slave girl. I was sold off and I became sick. And so they put me in a room until I died alone. And there was this common theme of me being alone. And so it didn't hit me until later because I, I really, love being in my downtime. I love being alone. And I, I love people too, don't get me wrong. But I mean, there's nothing like being alone and on my own. But I really struggled with crowds. I struggled if I were to have a big meeting at work and we went to a trade show, there were thousands of people. I mean, I was out of my mind. And I didn't put it together. I didn't, it didn't make, I didn't connect it until probably, it was my early 40s. And then I was like, wow. And that anxiety that I didn't realize was an anxiety at the time, like, I mean, it's not completely gone, but it's about 75% gone because I realized where it came from. So I'd read a lot of books like um, Brian Weiss, um, Many Lives, Many Masters, where, you know, he says, hey, these people regress back. They experienced, they understood where their issues came from. And in that there was healing, you know, some healing, all healing, you know, different, very low, low, various levels of healing. So just tapping into it and understanding where it's coming from, you know, and, and of course, accepting that, you know, I, I accept that that's how I am. I think that that really just helped me kind of move past some stuff and, you know, which is fantastic. I mean, to me, it's no different if you go back to an event that happened when you were two or three years old, as opposed to the last lifetime, which may have been just two or three years before that. I don't really see much of a difference in that. Right. I mean, if everyone were able to do this, particularly, you know, a lot of people out in Hollywood, uh, analysis would be at all the psychoanalysts would be out of business because it's immediate, isn't it? I mean, you know, I think of people that are in analysis for decades. Oh, I'm making progress. My analyst says I'm making progress. Decades, really? And you resolve uh, fear of crowds or anxiety being around large groups of people almost instantaneously after having a regression. Um, uh, do you think that the uh, the psychiatry or the psychology industry is afraid of the power of a past life regression? I wouldn't see how, and, and I don't know if you, have you read Many Lives, Many Masters yes, by Brian Weiss? Mm -hmm. You know, he actually says, hey, this is, I just was trying to regress her back to her childhood. And this is what happened. She went, kept going back. And so he said, I'm just gonna document. So he didn't say that this is a past life. He just said, hey, here's the information. You do, it, do with it what you want. So I couldn't, I, I don't think they're scared of, of that in that, they don't want it to heal somebody. They don't want that to be their method because it's still not accepted out there. I think that's more of a, hey, I don't want to do it. But the more you tap in, and it's funny, you know, I had an uncle who had a, a motorcycle and I was terrified of the, of the motorcycle. And I thought it was because it was loud, you know, as a kid, you know, it's a loud thing and it was, you know, hot. And and, and now I'm not scared of motorcycles, but I'd see it like they fly by me on the road and I'd, you know, jump. And again, never put it together. And now I have no problem. So but, you know, I mean, is my life enhanced because I now am okay with motorcycles? I don't know, <laughs> you know, but it's just something I could definitely connect to it, which gives it credibility. Uh, is there a, a, I don't know if danger is the right word, but, sh um, you know, I'm thinking of a scene, my boys love Harry Potter and they, they, they'll sit down and they'll watch the entire series of movies, whatever, I think there are eight of them beginning to end and then a few months later they'll start the process over again and they'll read all the books over and over and I remember a particular scene uh, where Harry Potter is sitting in front of this this magical mirror at um, uh, Hogwarts 
And uh, the headmaster, who's the wizard, Dumbledore, sort of cautions him because Harry Potter looks into the mirror and he sees his parents. And he cautions him. He says, you know, that can be a trap because you're, you know, you're living in the past. And you see it's, it's, an, it's a remarkable mirror and you can see all of these things and you're transfixed by it. But is there a, is there a cautionary tale here for, for people to get into this trap of, of experiencing their past lives? And it almost becomes... Uh, like an amusement ride. And, you know, they spend so much time doing that that they stop living their life forward. Yeah, it's a good question because there, I think, and again, I'm, I'm not medically trained to offer advice, but I would assume that if I were in a session where somebody were talking to me about working through past issues, whether it's early in life or a past life, uh, one of the last parts would be to release. Now that you've identified it, you know where it came from and you know what happened, you know, let's say you had a trauma as a young, you know, young child. Now you release it. That's the key part is working through it to release it. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, the other lives I tapped into, you know, they were like, okay, this happened, this happened. Okay, got it. But this one where I was paralyzed, I really, it was over and over. I was there. And, and I think it was because, I don't know if it was the most recent or because of the most traumatic, um, but I brought it in with me in this particular incarnation. And there was that last 11 years, um, it, I was wheelchair bound and, you know, under the influence of whatever I was taking, it was not a happy existence. And then there was also um, the ex, my ex-girlfriend's cat. I was to take care of the cat, which was a constant reminder every day of Julia. And it was this, and I, and I wrote about it. So I had to channel that emotion. And, you know, so to your point, I don't remember consciously saying, you know, well, I got to keep this at bay. I can't let that come into this lifetime that, you know, he probably, it was probably addiction, you know, cause like I said, it was a very miserable existence the last 11 years. So yeah, I can see where you'd get caught back up in that just as you would a past self from this lifetime, you know, that you move past something. So, so yeah. And, and I learned to release it um, later on and, and it was more so um, I just didn't have contact with the people that I connected with that lifetime. Um, and then I wrote about it. I wrote about it. This is what happened to me. And then I wrote it in a fictional narrative as well to kind of work through it. And that became how I worked through it, I guess. Did you, did you get any answers at the Metaphysical Academy uh, about your experience in bed at the age of 12 when your bed started to levitate? So I have a, a theory. So the other part of that story is back when I was 12 years old, um, I was into um, Ozzy Osbourne at the time and heavy metal, and that was my music. And I had a tapestry that I'd gotten at the fair. I'll never forget it because um, my parents hated it. And it was tacked up on the wall with, you know, four tacks and it had a giant pentagram. And then, of course, all the little Ozzy symbols everywhere because that was all over his album covers. And when I researched the next morning, I was trying to figure out what happened with my bed. The tapestry was off the wall, but the tacks were still there. And it was underneath the bed. And I just thought that was super strange. But my brother's messing with me. That happened a lot because I was the middle child. So I just, you know, chalked it up to that. But in hindsight, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back, I've learned now that pentagrams, if a certain way, they can protect you. Another certain way drawn, they can open up a portal and let something through. And I'm not sure that that wasn't the case in, in, in that situation, that something came through. And that's kind of where I landed on that. And, you know, there was some stuff going on, you know, it was it was a good childhood, but, you know, there was some some negativity in the house too. So I'm not sure that that didn't kind of, you know, bring up some stuff as well. All right, Garrett, we're going to take a quick time out, come back and uh, continue this fascinating conversation. 
Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. We all enjoy a little mystery. Every other week, One Strange Thing presents forgotten stories from America's newspaper archives. They all have something in common, a single element that can't quite be explained. Join us on One Strange Thing, and you'll hear about a man who was literally stricken with genius. A 21st century child who remembered piloting a World War II bomber. A mysterious, unidentifiable blob in Texas. And then there was the lizard man stalking through small-town South Carolina. From cryptids and disappearances to modern-day miracles, one strange thing brings you stories that are very real and just a little otherworldly. Subscribe now, wherever you listen. Overwhelmed by investing? If you're anything like us, the hardest part is getting started. That's why we created the Investing for Beginners podcast. Our goal is to help simplify money so it can work for you. We invite guests to demystify investing. At least try to be setting aside like the minimum 10% into the 401k. We'll teach you the basics of the market. Yeah, I think compound interest should be at the start of any discussion about investing. And We've had investment professionals who teach in a simple way. A valuation-driven bear market. You know, we, we haven't really seen yet, and I think everyone's thinking about it, but we haven't really seen yet. Our Q&A episodes feature questions from listeners just like you. So what do you think about the situation with ETBI, which is Activision? I'm Dave Ahern. And I'm Andrew Sather. And we hope you join us on the Investing for Beginners podcast. On the Investing for Beginners podcast. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? You're listening to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. And we're back with Gare Allen, the author of Ghost Crimes 2, The Paranormal Enemy. We're talking about first responders and their encounters with the paranormal and why they're often reluctant to speak about these things publicly. I think it makes sense why they would be. When I think of police, for example, um, I don't necessarily think of, uh, you know, people that that are interested in the paranormal initially until maybe it happens to them. They tend to be stoic. Uh, the type of people that keep their emotions kind of pent up inside, and that can be problematic, as we know. Um, how did you begin to research this topic of of first responders and their paranormal experiences? Because I mean that that's quite an undertaking. You're 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 right at the outset. You're dealing with people that are reluctant to talk to you at all. Yeah. So what happened was I had written a, uh, you said before, I'm into animal welfare. So there's no less than 
you know, two or three rescue dogs in my house at any time. Uh, so, but I'd written a book um, for a local group and um, I had collected adoption stories from this particular group from the pet parents. And I think I had 42 stories and hundreds of pictures. I put it together and I sold it and then the proceeds went to this group. And so it, it was a great success for me here in Tampa. And my hopes were that somebody in every city around the country would do that for a local group and, and that would catch on. So my thought process was, because um, I came up with the title Ghost Crimes for my next book, and I really liked the title. And as I was playing with it, I said, wow, I said, we, you think about um, someone shows up and they say, oh, no, no, you know, they, there's domestic disturbance and, you know, someone's been abused. And they say, no, they didn't do it. You know, it was, it was a ghost. A ghost did it. You know, they come up with whatever excuse, right? And I thought that was pretty funny to hear. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll collect stories from you know, first responders about their experiences and put it together like I had did the adoption book. And then I gotten, so I, I put a, a message out on my website and I got a few stories here and there. And the ones that direct messaged me though, were like, hey, I got a couple stories. I'm like, great. And so I started taking stories in, but one was a um, detective who had, had retired and he was a very reluctant um, experiencer of these things. And he didn't want to experience what he went to. And he just said, Hey, I'm going to tell you what happened. It was dark. And he was already in a dark place, having lost um, his love of his life. And just after college, he never recovered from that. He was sort of your typical overweight, worked too many hours detective, saw some awful things, which just weighed on him. He drank to try to get it out of his head, ate terribly. And just that went on for many, many years until he retired. So when I heard all his stories and I said, I, I can't just plop these in there. They're too heavy. There's too much in there. And, you know, somebody seeing a ghost and then somebody walking into a satanic ritual. It's like, how am I going to balance that out in the book? So I decided to write a fictional story, which became Ghost Crimes, using those stories weaved into the narrative. And it also gave me an opportunity to, to have these characters not only say what happened to them, but go through some healing as well. And so that's kind of how it came together. But once once I talked to somebody, they said, oh, yeah, and this happened. And then they would pass you know, the website on to somebody else. But it was always even though they were willing to tell me some things, it was through direct message. Nobody wanted to get on the phone. Nobody wanted to talk about names. A lot of nurses, a lot of people that work in, you know, long care facility, places like that. Um, you know, a friend of mine, his wife is a nurse. You know, she worked the graveyard shift. So she had a few stories, too. And that's kind of how it uh, it started. Were you suddenly cast in the role of the confessor? They wanted to unburden themselves and you became that guy? I, yeah, I think um, once they realized somebody wasn't laughing at them and they were able to just, you know, release it and say, hey, here's what happened. And, and sometimes they'd be like, what do you think that is? And it's like, you know, I'm no expert. I can tell you what happened to me, um, but I can tell you how to protect yourself um, because the last thing you want to do is bring something home. Um, but again, the the what these folks see and endure. And I have an, a mad respect for first responders in any, in any position or, or vocation that takes care of people. And, but especially the first responders, you know, they, they leave their houses and they put themselves in danger for strangers. And, and we just have to recognize that we have to support that and what they see. And it, it just, it's gotta be just very difficult to reconcile. They, it's probably very hard not to bring that home to their families and that sort of thing. But it's one thing you say, okay, you know, people are awful. I saw somebody do this, but they're like, something happened and I can't even blame it on people because I don't even know what happened. This was weird out there. Um, but, you know, I, I, have, I have a lot of humor in my writing. So I kind of came back with some humor, you know, to kind of lighten it, give it some levity, you know, so they can kind of work through it a little bit. But again, I, I, so in the second book, Ghost Crimes 2, I actually put a lot of these first responders in a weekly support group where they show up and it's sort of like, 
Alcoholics Anonymous, but for people who had traumatic paranormal, you know, experiences, or just ones they couldn't reconcile or explain. And they shared it in a safe space with other people who also had it. And I have that detective sort of helping them heal in that way. Right, right. And these are based on true stories, though, right? So the so the actual incidents are based on the true stories, yeah. right? So, but it's a fictional narrative. And I created characters to string that along. Right. So can let's can you share a couple of stories uh, from Ghost Crimes Two, the paranormal enemy? Yeah. So, ooh, this one was 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 rough, and this this poor lad is a younger guy too. So he shows up. Um, he responds to um, a child being abused. Um, is the call and, and the report, and he shows up um, with another officer, and they go inside. And the mother is screaming, help my child, help my child. And they go into a bedroom and this young boy is literally against the, he's about 10 feet up on the wall and he's being held there by an unseen force. Oh. And he, he said he thought it was around his neck because the neck looked very thin, like it was being pressed in. Um, his arm was broken and it was sort of just dangling there like a noodle. Um, the poor child is trying to scream for help. And the one of them just left. They couldn't. They they saw that and walked away. They couldn't. They couldn't handle it. And he said he doesn't know why, but something told him to take his uh, his cross off his necklace. And he ran up and he kind of slapped it on the kid on the wall. And just as he did, the kid was released and fell down. And he was able to you know take get him care and everything. And he he had no idea what why how he just he just wrote. You know, the kid was, he, he wrote what he could, but he, no one ever questioned it. And I was, that was the I was other thing. I was going to ask, how do, you, how do you write a report? Yeah. And as I told him, and he, and he said, well, you know, something happened where he was pinned against the wall. And, you know, you don't put that he was 10 feet up on the wall, right? He was pinned against the wall. We don't know why. It was a seizure. So he was up against the wall. You know, there's, you, you try and figure out what might, what it could be, because you should look for the rational explanation first, right? That's how we're wired. So anyway, he goes home and he's pretty exhausted and he has a dream where he's pinned against the wall by an unseen force. And, you know, his legs are dangling and, and they got him by the neck. And the unseen entity says, you don't have a cross to save you now. And he wakes up and he's on the floor underneath the wall where he had dreamt he had been held up. And in the book, I, I I have one of the people in the group say, what'd you do next? And he said, I went and got across. <laughs> you know? Smart plan. Yeah. Wow. So that one, that one was pretty, um, yeah. And I could tell that, you know, the beginning of the story was slow. And then the end of the story got real fast because he wanted to get to the part where, but then I got protection and he hasn't had any issues or he hadn't had any issues since when we discussed it. It would make sense that first responders would have, and I don't know if there's any data to support this, but it would make sense that they would have more paranormal experiences than the average person, uh, because what we what we tend to know about hauntings, for example, and and uh, poltergeist activity and paranormal experiences are usually associated with trauma uh, or a um, a traumatic death, for example where the person who dies isn't anticipating his death or her death. Um, or Am I wrong? Or, or is there any data that, to suggest that first responders have a, um, I guess, are over overrepresented in, in, in terms of having paranormal experiences? You know, I, I think, yeah, I think traumatic experience ties in. And I don't want to, I can't speak for them because I don't, I didn't ask those kind of questions. Um, I was really looking for the story, but 
I do know that an environment that is negative with addiction and, you know, you know, horrible home environment, abandoned places that, you know, something traumatic could have happened. Sure. And guess where these folks have to go sometimes? And then hospitals. I mean, there are people passing away daily in, in the hospital. So, you know, there's there's going to be lingering things and it may not be a horrible thing. It may just be an apparition or but, you know, it's still something we can't explain. And it's still unsettling. And, you know, sometimes it's just, hey, I saw a ghost, you know, um, it, it was kind of weird, but, you know, it didn't freak me out. But if somebody has a very specific belief system and you chip away at that a little bit, that can be very unsettling for some people because they want to have, you know, they this is how they view things. And they need that belief system in place to get through, you know, physical reality. And I completely uh, can connect with that. Or it could also be faith affirming, I suppose, if you believe in an afterlife. This has always somewhat puzzled me as as to why the church, uh, I'm an Orthodox Christian, why it doesn't embrace things like um, uh, people you know who have a near-death experience. Why they don't embrace that, why they tend to be embarrassed by it it's 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 affirming the existence of the soul i believe why why do you suppose religious institutions have a, have a problem with that i guess because and, and again i don't someone's not going to like this but probably because they can't control what's going to be sad is my guess and the other part of that is i if I had a, a, if I died for a minute and came back and you died for a minute and came back, we probably have very different experiences. They might have some similarities, um, but you may see someone you want to see and, and I may not, you know, I may, you know, tap into something, you know, darker that, you know, happened to come home with me that day. I don't know. And so I think you don't know what you're going to see, but, you know, the white light, you know, loved ones, that's definitely you know, prevalent out there when people talk about, you know, either about to pass or passing over and coming back. Back with more of our conversation right after these. I'm Andrew Gold, a fallen BBC journalist interviewing the heretics and rebels brave enough to speak out against mainstream narratives. Here's Coleman Hughes, John Ronson, and the Trigonometry podcast guys bringing controversy to the fore. How do you feel if a person of a different race moved in next door? I spent a while with a politically correct faction of the Ku Klux Klan. The system punishes people for wrong think. It's heartbreaking. Here's my unorthodox life Netflix star Julia Hart on getting out of a Hasidic Jewish cult. Why can't I be okay with being silent and subservient? Everyone else is. And biologist Richard Dawkins on trans activism. It's perfectly legitimate to say, I am a man, but I feel feminine. But to then say, therefore I am a woman, is just a betrayal of language. Now it's your turn rebel against the mainstream and find a home in this sensible alternative space by subscribing to Heretics Podcast. Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold. And we're the host of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there, we've seen it, and we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field, 
and we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. Third, it is accepted as self-evident. Self-evident. You're listening to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Just hanging out here with uh, Gare Allen, joining us from Tampa, Florida, and where he attended the uh, the Metaphysical Academy in the mid-1990s, and that changed the trajectory of his life. Thirteen books later, we have Ghost Crimes 2, The Paranormal Enemy. And uh, why is it called The Paranormal Enemy in the subtitle, Gare? So I did that intentionally because I wanted I wanted it to be the focus. I, I had put a lot of stories of people, you know, seeing ghosts or seeing loved ones, you know, kind of what we we're just talking about, you know, a little bit of an experience passing over. But I wanted to show how the paranormal can be super negative and affect people. And that's where that support group came up. So it's an enemy. It's 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 affecting their lives. They need to talk about it. And I wanted to get that message in there. And to say, and and not to give away too much of the story, but there's also another level where the paranormal, I sort of break it into two categories, so to speak, but I can't go any further without giving away the story. But there is, it, you're able to to see it as, as good and then almost victim um, and then bad. So again, going in a little bit of a demon um, territory there. Can you share another story from Ghost Crimes 2? Yeah. Um, so there were um, EMTs that um, showed up to an apartment. They got a call that a woman had died in the apartment. And when they arrived, the door was slightly ajar. And so they pushed it open and there was a woman standing to the left um, as they opened the door. And she had a yellow robe and brown hair. And she just pointed upstairs to the stairs to the right and up. So they immediately ran up there. And when they got up there, they found the dead woman, but it was the same woman with the yellow robe and the brown hair mm. and so that that's i've heard that versions of that from different responders that someone had called for help and there was no one there but um the woman lived alone you know and, and not to sound like a cheesy horror movie but the call came from within the house um but you've heard similar stories also where they'll show up to a car accident scene and someone grabs their hand and you know brings them over to a car where there's a child stuck in there maybe a baby in a car seat or you know someone's hurt in the passenger seat or it's that person, you know, in, in the, the car and then they disappear. Um, but they were, you know, their soul brought them or their ghost right. brought them there. You know, you hear version, a lot of versions of things like that. Um, I think my favorite story was um, there was there were two patients and they were in the same room and it was a very hectic night. There was a, a big pile up on the interstate. A lot of people did not make it out of that. And I think it was like 60 cars, so wow. 60 plus cars pile up. And um, so they had two people in the same room. They were not expected to make it. Um, but the nurse said she went into the room and she went to the um, bed closest to the door and it was freezing. And she's like, why is it so cold in here? And the man was terrified and he was not in good shape, but he kept pointing up and, and he said there was a demon that was going to take him to hell. She said, he said, don't leave me. You know, he's here to take me to hell. And she tried to calm him down. I think she gave him some more medication. So she went to the other bed on the other side of the room and it was very warm. And she's like, okay, something's up with the air conditioning. And this was a very calm man who was not in good shape either, was not expected to make it, but he was very calm and he had overheard what they said, but he said, 
I have an angel here to take me to heaven. So she's like, okay. And he had a cross on and she's like, okay, these guys are, they realize they're not going to make it. So they're both clinging to their belief of what happens after they pass. So they both did pass. So she said several months went by and she pretty much forgot about it. And um, there was an elderly woman who was chucked into that same room and she was in the bed closest to the door. So she went in there because the woman had called them and she said, what do you need? And she says, well, I'm not in the right place. And she said, no, ma'am, you're in the right room. And she goes, no, you don't understand. I'm supposed to be in the bed with the angel. Wow. (laughs) And that whole experience came flooding back to her. And it was like, wow, just, just wow. Yeah. So I think when you're, when you're on the brink, you know, I think, uh, I think that world starts to really open up to you. Um, and, and I don't know, you know, I don't want to be insensitive and, you know, and it's, it's not right to say, oh, someone's about to pass. Let me see what I can find out about what they're experiencing. That's not right. I don't want to be someone that does that, but it is interesting to hear, you know, those things in those moments. How about for you personally, do you have, I mean, you mentioned the incident when you were 12 and some past life experiences, but do you have more than the average amount of parent, whatever that means? I don't know what average is. Do you have a lot of paranormal experiences? Um, unfortunately, I do. And and luckily, most of them are what I call, and, and again, I, I'm, I'm older and wiser now, but back in the day, you know, if, if my keys were missing or, you know, something fell you know, or something flew across the room, I'd call it a parlor trick. You know, I just antagonized them because that's a smart thing to do, right? So but I was like, what is this? You know, parlor tricks, right? You know, if, if you can, there's a great meme out there. It says, if you can throw stuff across the room, you can pick up a broom, right? Help me out. Let's clean the house a little bit. But I, I, I've had a couple experiences and I, as of late, I tend to bring things home and I have my house secure. You know, I do a sea salt, holy water barrier, which I know sounds crazy. Um, but it keeps out the negativity. But sometimes ghosts aren't negative. They're just people that have passed over that haven't moved on and they'll come home. But recently I um, I was looking to move. So I was looking at houses and I was in a house and the people had lived there for 60 years. The husband had literally built it from the ground up. I mean, everything was his his hard work. And I could just tell I that was not my house. I don't think they wanted me. To, I got that feeling like I shouldn't be there. And I just had a feeling that the, the the wife was like, you know, don't buy my house. I don't want you to buy it. I'm like, okay. And anyway, I didn't think anything of it. And that night I get up in the middle of the night and I go to the bathroom and a towel that's sitting on the counter literally flies in front of me the second I walk in the room. And I reached out to uh, Michael Robichaud, who's a, a modern day shaman. And he goes, he does remote cleansings. And I said, hey, can you just check out my house? Because I think something's up. I didn't tell him anything else. And the next day he said, yeah, you had something in there. No big deal. I took care of it. He goes, it was an older woman. And I was like, and that was it. No, you know, angry. No, it was just an older woman. And it kind of fit with what I thought. So I have a lot of things like that happen. Um, you know, when I bought that the house I live in now, the I didn't know it, but the person had committed suicide in the house four months prior. Um, well, the, in real estate, aren't there, don't, isn't there a law that real estate agents have to divulge that kind of information? So I called my realtor and, and unfortunately, Florida does not. In some states, they, there is a law. But of course, here in Florida, you know, we just cut, let everything ride here, you know. But I said, I said, didn't you have, you know, legally, didn't you have to tell me that? And she said, no. And I said, well, ethically, don't you think you should have? And she didn't say anything. So um, but what was really terrifying about it, and this is what I write about in the dead, is so I have the ghost of this person who, who shot himself in the front bedroom. Um, but he had, they had also found an altar. Um, that he had been practicing. They wasn't sure if it was voodoo or like Santeria, but it was something very dark and he had brought something dark in there. So 
through psychics and, and this modern day shaman, I determined that I had two. I had the ghost of the man that passed and I had this very, very dark entity. And so I had a lot of experiences and, and one where it actually manifested in my bedroom. And that was that was the most terrifying experience that made the bed look like a carnival ride. That was nothing. Um, wow. And I was an adult. Yeah. You need to so when it manifested, entity, what did it look like? So. I, it was really weird. I was I was very agitated. And that's the thing is I, I will react to things and I won't realize I'm reacting to things. So like people say, oh, you can sense negativity. It's like, I do sense that stuff. I just never put it together. I don't know. I feel like I've done sometimes, but I'm like, oh, that's why I was upset. There was a demon in the room. That's but anyway, normal I'm, I'm, biasy. That's no, yeah, it's normal biasy, right? When we have, a, there's a traumatic event or something unsettling, we, we look for the prosaic explanation and we cling to that because, you know, to contemplate the other is kind of unsettling. Yeah. And, you know, my family and friends pick on me. They're like, not everything's a ghost. I'm like, mm, okay. <laughs> but a lot of it is, I'm telling you. But I, I went to bed and, and I was very agitated. I couldn't sleep. I kept tossing and turning and I had my shirt off and I was lying on my side and I felt two fingers push into my ribs, but they pushed with such force that it rocked my body. And I turned around and then I immediately was in sleep paralysis. And I remember thinking I must be dreaming, but I hadn't fallen asleep yet. And the next thing I know, there's this head, there's this face and it's burnt and yellow eyes and very wiry um, beard on the, you know, hairs on the chin. And it was just awful. In the back, I could see like what I thought was a tail kind of behind it. And I'm just frozen. And again, it was probably a few seconds. It felt like an eternity. And it was like looking at me strange, like studying me. And I'm just like, can't move. And one of the whiskers actually touched me. And in that second, I, I came out of it. And it flew out of the room. And all three of my dogs jumped off the bed and ran after it. So I don't know if they didn't see it, if they were paralyzed like I was as well. But they literally chased this thing to the front bedroom where the door then slammed shut. Dear Lord. And I'm like, I'm going to guess that was the thing that was conjured or brought in from yeah, so um, it took a couple months, and I pulled every trick out of the book, um, but finally we were able to manage it. Um, well, the, my my friend Michael Robichaud was able to get rid of it for me. Every trick. Well, can you tell us maybe one trick, one quiver, <laughs> one arrow in our quiver we might use if a visitation like that? So there was um, a very long incantation that I did with um, my psychic friend at the time, and um, we went through the house and then we did the holy water. We did the sea salt. We did the white candle and you're swirling it. And the energy is going up through the candle and out. We put um, half cut lemons in all four corners of the room and that they're supposed to absorb them and become black. And I left them in there for a week and they never absorbed the negativity. And what was in every, I had uh, three psychics. So the one was a friend of mine and I was like, I need somebody unbiased. I need someone who knows nothing about the house to come in here and tell me what they're seeing. And they said, yeah, you got something pretty bad and it's hiding. It is in a corner in that closet in that bedroom. And when they would come in my house, they would literally come in and their eyes would go right to that bedroom. And this is Florida. I closed the air conditioning vent in there and it stayed cold. I mean, through the summer. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was not a good room at all. So now we're past all that, but yeah, I mean, I was able to what we did was just sort of keep it at bay, but it was still there. And I didn't, I couldn't have it there. Not after that night. Um, I couldn't have it manifest. I mean, if you're manifesting in this reality, how much power do you have? That's, that's scary. Why you, why, why does this happen to you? <laughs> I think um, 
like attracts like, and I put it out there. Um, I couldn't get enough. I was very, you know, oh, let me get out of my body. Let me astral project and, you know, fly around and just see stuff. You know, let me, you know, chase ghosts and, and connect with my spirit guides and do all those things, not thinking that there was any danger in it. And so I opened myself up, like I said, physically, emotionally, spiritually, I was aligned to have those experiences and to be open to it. And I, like I said, I was kind of like, I, I, I don't know, I wasn't bored with life, but the physical reality was like, oh, there's something else than this. Cause I was just done with it. You know, I was like, I, I, don't, I don't know, not that I had conquered the world by any means, but I really had, I had more of an interest in the other world than physical world. And that changed later and I found a nice balance. Um, but I think you, you put it out there and it comes back to you. I remember having a channeling session and um, one of the spirits said, like attracts like. It's not opposites attract, like attracts like. So what you put out there is going to come right back. And I couldn't get enough. Wow. That could be dangerous. Talking about addiction. Um, what's the difference between the paranormal and the metaphysical? So it's interesting because to me, the paranormal is under the metaphysical umbrella. And I am, if, if I were to break it down, I'm probably 70% focused on the metaphysical, 30% on the paranormal. Oh, I only say that because the paranormal tends to be ghosts. People say paranormal is ghosts, but the paranormal is defined by anything that can't be explained by science, right? right. Well, metaphysical, meta is Latin for above, beyond, transcending the physical, which is the same thing as paranormal. So to me, paranormal is under that metaphysical umbrella, along with the reincarnation, the astral projection, the, again, those things that can't be defined or, or understood so much by, by science. And so I'm, but paranormal enemy, instead of metaphysical enemy, sounded a little better. <laughs> Good decision. Good editing decision. Uh, can we hear one more ghost story from your ghost crimes too? Um, yeah. So um, there's a girl and a, a couple and they report that a man has broken into their home and they're threatening them. And so the police show up, this officer shows up and the man is dressed in a hospital gown and he just, he's pretty upset, but he's not violent, but he keeps pointing at the girl and saying, she killed me. She killed me. She killed me. He says over and over. So he's hysterical. So she takes him into the car. She puts him in the car. She goes to get a statement and she comes back and he's gone. The car door's not open. He's just vanished from inside the car. So she's trying to figure it out. And she there was a hospital not too far away. So she went to the hospital to try and figure out who this individual was, if he had gone back there. And it turns out through that he had been in the hospital for the last several months in a coma, and he had passed away early that morning. Wow. So she's like, okay. So she goes, she wouldn't let it go, though. She said, there's something more to this. So she goes back to the house to talk to the woman. It's like, he seemed to know you. You know, whether we're talking a ghost or whatever, this guy seemed to know you and blamed you. And he was in a coma and she breaks down in tears and she confesses that um, several months ago they were dating. Um, she was driving. She picked him up because his car wasn't working and she had been drinking and they got in a terrible accident. She wrapped the car around a tree and he was put into a coma and she put him in the driver's seat before anybody showed up and blamed it on him. And that was what he was trying to get her to admit while he was there, or his ghost was trying to get her to admit. And that story was, was huge because the closure for, well, she needed to get past that she lied, but his family needed to understand exactly what happened. It was not his fault. He did not drive drunk, you know, and, and again, it was a horrific thing, but at least they understand exactly what really happened. And she was able to provide that. 
So the officer had a very interesting perspective. It wasn't, yeah, I saw a ghost and that's crazy. She's like, I was able to help his family. That was her defining moment in that story. And that just speaks to the caliber of these people that are out there doing what they're doing. Right. Right. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. Ghost crimes to the paranormal enemy. Do you ever feel when you're writing and you've written 13 books, uh, that, that you're channeling someone else, someone else's words, like automatic writing? You know, I actually tried to do that and I couldn't because I'm a bit of a control freak. Um, I'm also a left brain kind of guy, believe it or not, for all this craziness, I still take things in through my left side of my brain to make sense of it. Um, but no, I, I, I have a lot of control in my writing and I use the people that, that I know. So if I have to write about a 16 year old girl, I just channel my niece, you know, I tap into my niece here, but um, I have been given storylines. I've seen characters do things that I did not intend for them. So when I write an outline, it's hilarious because I love to go back and look at it when I'm done and to see how far off the reservation I actually went with these characters. And I believe the characters organically became what they're going to become. So I think through that process, they're they're kind of like inserting thoughts or sending the character that way. But I'm blissfully unaware of the process. And so I'm able to allow it because I'm a control freak. I think they know that, you know, they can't nudge me. They got to just sort of like send it through me without me knowing. So my guys have learned to work with me over the years. <laughs> What's next, Gare? So um, I'm making Ghost Crimes um, a screenplay right now. So my hope is that it will become a series or a movie. I'm also writing the third Ghost Crimes. The working title is um, An Unholy Trinity. Um, so I've got the outline for that now as well. Fantastic. And the website, gareallen.com, G-A-R-E, Allen, A-L-L-E-N, gareallen.com. A great pleasure meeting you. I enjoyed our uh, conversation, Gare. Thank you so much. I did. Thank you so much. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com.